Hey, hi, I'm Bonnie. Welcome to this podcast, Make Joy Normal, where we chat about homeschooling and family life. With my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, we address your questions and topics in a way that can create more joy in our lives. Please submit any questions you have by email or voice message in the links in the show notes. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend, like, or leave us a review. That's how we get the word out. Thanks for trying to make joy normal in your own life. Good afternoon to all my listeners. I am going to broach a topic today that I think is uh, will be of interest to many people, and it's certainly something that is talked about a lot in Catholic circles and Christian circles and uh, homeschooling circles. <laughs> and it's the topic of ecological breastfeeding and natural family planning. Um, I have a couple of people here with me today. My friend, Lori Dennison, who her and I have raised our kids together and, and kind of lived uh, a particular lifestyle quite similar to each other, uh, which is what brought us together as friends in the first place. And also Gina Peterson. Uh, and Gina is, um, this is near and dear to her heart as well. So I'll let these ladies introduce themselves and then we'll sort of dive into this topic. So Gina, would you go first? Um, yes, my name is Gina Peterson, and um, I'm a mom of five children. I also help run the Catholic Nursing Mothers League, which part of our um, mo- mission is to promote ecological breastfeeding. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, and Lori, do you want to introduce you? Sure, I'm Lori, and <laughs> I have seven kids. My oldest now is 33, and my youngest is 14, so I'm not in... I'm not currently breastfeeding any of them, <laughs> um, but but I did for many many years, right? For all all the way, all all seven of them. So I had some experience with uh, <laughs> the whole ecological breastfeeding and all that goes with it. Yeah. And I homeschooled them too. <laughs> awesome, thank you. The reason why I thought Lori and I could have this conversation, and then as we were talking about it, we sort of came to the conclusion that because we've been sort of out of the loop, my youngest is 16 now, we've kind of out of the loop for quite a while. We wanted to make sure that we were sort of up to date on latest research, latest science on ecological breastfeeding and NFP. And that's why I wanted you to come into this conversation, Gina, because I just felt like it was important to have somebody whose fingers on the pulse currently, right? Because things do change and research changes. Usually it gets better, right? So that we know more and we become, you know, NFP has actually become more accurate over the years. So I thought, do you mind if I just sort of dive into our questions? Okay, great. The first question is, what is ecological breastfeeding and how does it work? Okay. So as opposed to extended breastfeeding or exclusive breastfeeding, how, how would we define the term ecological breastfeeding? Well, e- ecological breastfeeding is more of a kind of a lifestyle and it includes exclusive breastfeeding, but it also includes things like, you know, avoiding pacifiers and bottles, sleeping with your baby, trying to take at least one or more naps during the day with your baby, you know, nursing at the same time. And then just of avoiding schedules and separation, it's a little bit more intense than just just exclusive breastfeeding. Right. And so when you use the term ecological breastfeeding, are you really talking about the does it is it included in that statement in that phrase is uh, the natural spacing that happens from uh, the way we choose to breastfeed our child? Yes. So if you just were going to exclusively breastfeed, but not really practice a lot of the other principles of ecological breastfeeding, you could, ha- you could have, a, you probably have right. a little bit of spacing. Um, that's what the, 
lactational amenorrhea method is based on, you know, just kind of exclusive breastfeeding. But by adding these other variables, it tends to extend how long that amenorrhea lasts. Right. Okay. So how does it work? Like, how does the spacing of babies, the the intent of ecological breastfeeding uh, in terms of both mothering and and spacing babies, how I just would, if you don't mind sort of addressing kind of the science of how it works, right? So people sort of know where we're coming from. So it's really the frequency of the suckling. I, based on a lot of the research studies, it's that frequency. If you're pacifying your baby at the breast and you're avoiding separation and you're sleeping with your baby, it's just increasing that amount of time that they're at the breast. And also it hopefully it's shortening that interval between the nursings also. So so that is that is the big thing. Also during the night, nursing during the night tends to also help, you know, keep fertility, you know, mm-hmm. away. Th- those are kind of the big things. Yeah. Yeah. Years ago, I had read something that uh, that said like in in countries that still maintain sort of traditional uh, baby practices that we think of, you know, nursing our baby every couple of hours or every, you know, we sort of have a, you know, sort of try and stretch out the times that we're nursing our baby. But that on average, the baby is suckling for a couple of minutes every 20 minutes. Yes. Which I thought was a really interesting fact that, that, you know, because people are wearing their babies, they're just, you know, they kind of can suckle when they, whenever they want to. And so uh, that's one of the things that, that would keep fertility suppressed for its sort of what we would think of, I guess, as a natural period of time that we should be, be spacing our babies sort of thing. So that it's not, we're not intentionally nursing in a way to to not have another baby, but we're nursing in a way that would be natural and normal. So that kind of a more natural, normal spacing occurs. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. It's kind of a natural side effect. Um, I think it's just, just a very natural following of your, what your baby wants. At least in my experience, my babies did want to nurse often. And I think because I stayed with them and they were always close with me. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we we sort of are in this culture that doesn't really uh, recognize that. It's sort of we're still working on being kind of breastfeeding friendly in a sense. I think it's way more breastfeeding friendly than when Lori and I started back in the '90s, kind of thing. That it was that it was it's a different game now. Most almost everybody nurses their baby at least for a period of time. Public breastfeeding is just super normal and all of that. But I do think we still sort of we're, we think about something's wrong with our baby if they want to nurse every twenty minutes, right? Right. Right. I agree. It's good for us. It's good for them. So I want to just for a moment sort of talk about our experience because I think it's just so people know it's actually doable. And in fact, in some ways makes your life a lot easier if you're willing to sort of to not fight it. Right. So Lori, do you sort of want to talk about your experience just in nursing babies, spacing babies and how that kind of rolled out? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I started off with my oldest daughter, not knowing anything really about breastfeeding. I was an RN, so I had been taught a little bit in nursing school, but, uh, you know, I had really no experience. And, you know, I learned as I went along. And it was when Rachel was a baby that I went to a La Leche League meeting and found Sheila Kipley's book, Breastfeeding Natural Child Spacing. And it just changed my life. Like, I just loved what she was saying. And it really 
resonated with my heart. I thought, yes, this is the way that I want to raise my baby. And this is this is the relationship I want to have with my baby. I didn't really care about child spacing at that point because she was my first baby and we wanted more children. And, uh, you know, that I just thought we just accept babies as they came. You know, it just, I liked it based on, you know, the mother-baby relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really opened my eyes. So then I, you know, I was able to just forget about, oh, but what about when I have to wean her? And what about you know, all of the other sort of social norms of breastfeeding. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go with this and do this natural breastfeeding thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and see how it goes. Our kids ended up being spaced um, about two and a half years just from that, just from um, that ecological breastfeeding method. And I tandem nursed them as well. Like I keep nursing this, the next one, so that was when the older one would be weaned once there was two more. <laughs> then during the pregnancy, the older one would lose interest. And by that time, they were old enough, you know, about five years old that they didn't, they, you know, were hardly nursing anyways, and they would just stop when I was pregnant. And and then I would only have, the, you know, the, the new baby and the, mm-hmm. the toddler to worry about. So. Yeah. My experience was very similar to Lori's that, that it, I wasn't even Catholic and I read Sheila Kipley's book and I didn't really care about the whole, I, I didn't even know what they were really talking about, like birth control, like, you know, what's, I don't even really understand or, or know or care, but the, but the infant care, which that book, Breastfeeding and Natural Child Spacing is so much more, it's almost like, it's almost like the spacing of the babies is kind of a happy accident mm-hmm. of this beautiful relationship that you want to have with your child and why. And so I think, I don't know if you have resources that you name, but I'm sure that must be on your resource list because it's just such a, a profoundly life-changing book because she gets to the heart of why why we would want to mother in this particular way. Mm-hmm. And here's also the happy accident is that, you know, you generally get uh, longer spacing between your kids. So Lori and I, basically Lori and I met because we had, we were both had just had our third baby. She was the only other person on the planet that I knew that was nursing a toddler and the baby. I thought, you know, I've never, I mean, I knew tandem nursing existed, but I'd never actually met a person that did it. And so Lori and I met. And so we were immediately friends because we were both tandem nursing. <laughs> we had to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> The ways that, and I'm sure you can speak to this too, Gina, like that That in many ways, even though it sounds like, okay, it could sound like I'm being a martyr to my children or something like that. It just makes your life so much easier because your children are happier, first of all. You're just not thinking about the social norms. You don't really care about the social norms. Would you say that was, is true in your life? Yeah. I mean, of course, when, you, when you're nursing your first, your first child, you're very worried about, you know, nursing in public. But then as you continue this kind of lifestyle, it just becomes completely natural and normal to you and your family. And that, that, that was my experience. And also breastfeeding is great when you're, when you have a toddler who's upset, you know, they hurt themselves or, or, you know, it's, it's perfect Mm -hmm. for helping them feel better. And if you didn't eat, and a lot of women who Mm -hmm. wean, then they have to find something else to fill that void. You know what I mean? The, when they when the toddler hurts themselves and so it's just yeah breastfeeding just seems to help with so many different situations yeah exactly yeah and and even co-sleeping like it just it just made our life easier because I 
who wants to get up in the night, right? You just, you know, your baby's right there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was an adjustment with my first, I, I found it really difficult to have her sleeping with me. And so I had to, you know, adjust my mindset. But then at some point I thought, no, it's just so much easier to just have her in bed with me mm -hmm. and uh, have the kids in bed with me. So, so in many ways, as long as if you, if you can stop sort of wrestling with the social norms, because I think that is the biggest, same as homeschooling, right? If that's the bigger issue that if you can just get past that and that, you know, I'm just doing what I need to do what I think God's calling me to do. And beyond that, we just can't care, right? We just can't really care what the world out there is doing, you know? <laughs> Can I move into the question, sort of what is NFP? Because I, I not all my listeners are Catholic. Um, I have some secular and Protestant listeners. And I'd like to be really clear about what F NFP is, because it's, it isn't what your grandmother used, right? It, you know, and, <laughs> and I think that's where people can think, well, my grandmother used NFP and she had eight kids. So that doesn't work. So if we can, could you sort of give kind of a definition of NFP? What, so for somebody <laughs> who maybe doesn't really know what it is, I mean, I think most people... Young people are quite aware now, right? And they research things and whatnot. So I would say most people probably have heard the term, but what does it mean? It's just charting different um, signs of fertility. And there's different methods. What's really nice right now is there's so many different methods that you can pick with one or more signs and that can fit your particular circumstances. But typically like cervical mucus, your temperature, symptothermal also does a, you could do a cervix check. Some of the more latest methods mm -hmm. um, also look at the hormones. You're, you're testing your hormones. I'm real happy mm -hmm. that there's so many choices. Exactly. And so, so we're looking at the, the kind of the markers of fertility. So we're, we want to be aware of the markers of fertility so that we can either engage in or avoid sexual intimacy so that we can either avoid a pregnancy or, or achieve a pregnancy. So it works both ways, right? Right. That's what that's what makes it different than um, artificial contraception methods, because their aim is just yeah. to avoid pregnancy. But natural family planning is easily exactly. used in either direction with, you know, with your normal charting that you do. And it's so cool just to know your body, like to get to know your body that, oh, oh, the reason I'm having that particular symptom right now, oh, I must be ovulating. I mean, most of us know what our menstrual cycle symptoms are. You know, we have menstrual cycles from teenagehood and we, we sort of know what those uh, symptoms are just because they, we experience them every month. You know, we get backache or we, you know, get irritable or we have a breakout or, or whatever. But to also be aware of your symptoms of ovulation, suddenly, suddenly I think you start to view yourself as a fertile being, which is what really what we should be viewing ourselves as, as opposed to a being that's not going to have a baby right now. I, I'm going to rant about this for just a moment. I've always felt like birth control thwarts a healthy system. That's what it does, right? Chemical birth control, surgical birth control or whatever thwarts a healthy system. So we wouldn't take any other system in the body and make it not work, we wouldn't do that, right? Because that's kind of crazy talk because we know there's going to be repercussions from that. Natural family planning, even if there's not, you don't have religious reasons why you would not want to use birth control, the fact that you're not thwarting a natural and healthy system, fertility is a sign of health. And for people who are infertile, uh, struggle with fertility, know that intimately. They, they understand that it's, it's not something you can take for granted because it's a sign of health. Um, so let's not thwart that system. 
you know, we wouldn't take our, our circulatory system and do something terrible, you know, take a pill to make it stop working. It doesn't make sense. And that doesn't make sense. So both of you guys actually was hoping for your input on moral, relational, physical benefits of not using birth control. So do you want to sort of speak to that first? Like, have you got some thoughts on that? How about like, Gina goes first? <laughs> <laughs> you to I do have thoughts, but yes, just you need to collect verbalizing them is hard. <laughs> so thoughts, just in general, what are all the benefits uh, or some of the benefits over the scope of benefits, moral, relational, physical benefits that we can experience from not using birth control? in terms of physical is you're not introducing any, you know, chemicals or any kind of something that, like you said, you know, something that's affecting that system that's not naturally there. And then I think by charting, if you decide to chart with natural family planning, then you're more aware of what, of, of how you're feeling throughout, throughout your cycle. In terms of moral, um, the, the Catholic church, you know, teaches that the marital act should be open to life. And so by using natural family planning, you're not putting anything in between that act. A lot of people promote natural family planning. They say, you know, it helps with communication between husband and wife. Right. Yeah. And so that could be an advantage. And I, I think, too, that it turns the question around, like, instead of asking the question from ter- terms of being a, a couple, instead of asking the question, sort of, well, why would we have a baby? why would you have a baby? Because if you're on birth control and you're considering going off of birth control, you would ask the question, why would we have a baby? But when we are using natural family planning, every time where we become fertile, whether that's post breastfeeding, postpartum, or from on a month to month basis, if you decide for whatever reason, you think you should wait to have a baby, the question you're asking is why not have a baby? And I think there's a really fundamental uh, psychological difference between those two questions, because in the natural course of things, we left nature to itself, mm-hmm. we would have a baby if we are in a sexual relationship. So that would be the natural outcome of our physical relationship with our spouse. The question then in my mind is, is more well ordered to say, why not have a baby than it is to say, why have a baby, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a that's a nice explanation about that. One of the things uh, uh, before I get to your comments, because I see you writing things down. Now. Yeah. <laughs> Janet Smith, who is uh, has always been a front runner in terms of um, teaching people about NFP and the difference between NFP and birth control uh, and what that all means. She's a she's a professor that produced years ago. She produced um, talks on this topic, and she was very eloquent about it. And she said, like the difference between natural family planning and birth control, because people will say, well, what's the difference? If you're saying no to a baby, what's the difference? And her explanation has always stuck with me. She said, when you are on birth control, you are not inviting God to the party, right? There's three of you in this marriage, right? When you're on birth control, you're not inviting God to the party. When you are practicing NFP, because you're avoiding relations during your fertile time, if you're trying to avoid a pregnancy, you're just not having the party. And I thought, Oh wow, okay, that's a that's a great perspective on on why they are different, why NFP and birth control are different from each other if we desire to be open to life. And also having to constantly be asking this question, you know, why am I why are we not having a baby? Why are we waiting? Let's examine is our are our reasons still valid? Are our reasons still important, right? 
So you have some thoughts. Sure. Yeah. So what did you say again? Physical, moral, moral, um, spiritual, all the right. ways, uh, moral, relational, physical benefits. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think the, the communication aspect, as you two have said, mm-hmm. is really important. The communication between husband and wife and the, the mutual respect that develops rather than just, you know, suppressing the natural function of your body you're respecting your body and you're respecting each other's bodies, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Which I think that's important. I think that also, if you're choosing not to have a baby, you kind of realize that there's, there's something that you, you play a part in that. And the part you play is that, that abstinence during the fertile time, right? So it's sort of fitting that you would, you know, learn that sort of Mm self-control and that's one of the fruits of the holy spirit too Mm -hmm. is is continence and self-control that and so i think that's really good for us in a in a spiritual and moral Mm -hmm. way if we don't have any reason to abstain then well that's fine everyone does sometimes due to illness or childbirth or you know other reasons that you may have to separation if you know you the Mm -hmm. have to travel separately for some reason or there's those reasons but if you're choosing to abstain in order to avoid avoid a pregnancy, I think that can be actually a benefit to us as far as the yeah. our spiritual development. And also the you know the church teaches that the the purpose of sexual intimacy between the husband and wife is twofold, both unity of the husband and wife and procreation. like mm-hmm. the one of the obvious biological purposes of sexual intimacy is procreation. There's another aspect of respect there because in not using contraception, you're you're respecting the the fundamental, you know, intrinsic meaning of your sexuality, which mm-hmm. is both unity and procreation. You're not you're not separating the two yeah. um, by using technology, you know, to yeah. to to do that. So those are beautiful. some of my thoughts. Yeah, I actually love the thought, especially about the sort of formation that happens uh, and the self-control and spiritual growth that happens with uh, periodic continence. Because I think in a way, it's the same as chastity. You know how you a couple that practices chastity prior to marriage, um, you know, what you know about your spouse, the, the person you're going to marry, is that they have enough self-control that they can respect your virginity prior to marriage, right? So you also know that the chances of, of infidelity or of them being upset because you you can't be intimate after you have a baby or something like that, that's not going to be a problem. If you've practiced chastity prior to marriage, it's strengthened you and given you confidence in each other, right? That, that this is something we can do. So if we need to do it for a couple of months, you know, here or there, we or, or a few days for that matter with NFP, there's no problem here, right? We know we can, we've built something here. I think that the, it can make the wife help to feel loved too, mm-hmm. right? She yeah. knows that her husband is willing exactly. to exactly. abstain um, during a time that they, that they are not able to have another child for whatever their reasons are um, because he loves her and he respects her. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not too great a sacrifice for him to make for mm-hmm. for her and for the sake of their marriage and their family um Beautiful. so yeah yeah i love it one of the sort of a little bit more pragmatic questions sort of from when you're transitioning from ecological breastfeeding to to nfp so you know for example ecological breastfeeding we know 
we're going to get a certain amount of time of um, not being able to get pregnant again. And that varies from person to person. For us, like for Lori and myself, we, we both were very comfortable with the idea and we were in a situation where we could just, for the most part, just be ready for the next baby when our fertility returned. But if you're either not ready for a baby or you're not sure if your fertility is returning, like what are, first of all, what are the signs that we would be watching for to know that that transition is happening so that we could start looking at NFP as an option uh, when ecological breastfeeding is... We're nearing the end of our amenorrhea. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So we're nearing the end of our breastfeeding amenorrhea. When your baby is starting to take more and more solid food and you notice that maybe they're not nursing as often, also, especially when they night wean, you might want to be watching at that point. Right. What about our own physical signs? Would there be things that we could, um, that would indicate to us that we were in a period of transition? Yeah. As you get closer to having your fertility return, usually you start having more and more um, cervical mucus that you'll you know, be able to see or have a right. sensation. If you were following like the Marquette method, you might start getting, um, it uses a fertility monitor and watches for estrogen and LH, and you might start be getting some spikes of estrogen, you know, as you're getting closer and closer to returning to fertility. Save those two things. Um, you know, the temperature is going to be, I think taking temperature is wonderful and I always do, but like that's good. That's only going to tell you, you know, after you've ovulated, that's when you'll see that rise. <laughs> so, so it's probably more the, the mucus sign. And, and then if you're doing, you know, hormonal testing. Okay. Now how, how does the hormone testing work? Like, well, how are they testing hormones? Is, is that the saliva test? Cause I've heard that there's, there's saliva, there's different ways of testing things, but that's kind of relatively new. Uh, so it's just using your first morning urine, actually. Okay. They recommend oh, okay. like so, a four-hour hold. Then you just use your first morning urine and test that. Okay. So the same way if you would do or doing a pregnancy test. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Cool. So that's Marquette. Yeah. Okay. I don't really know much about it. I mean, I'm slightly familiar with symptothermal and billings. And there's also uh, a method that has developed for people with fertility problems. Creighton. Creighton. Yeah. So there's different, and there's, there's secular methods now being developed. So for, you know, most, a lot of these organizations have a Catholic foundation, but now there's sort of secular uh, organizations that are coming up with, with methods that, you know, that they support that have a sort of a religious, I suppose. Right. No religious teaching going along with it kind of thing. One of the questions that was posed to me is, what if you have irregular cycles? All the methods have ways of dealing with irregular cycles. I mean, if you're doing mucus only, you're just looking for, you know, you're looking for your dry patterns and then you're looking for that transition to a, a change in your mucus and then maybe go back to dryness. And if you had, say, irregular mm -hmm. cycles, you could very easily follow that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about Marquette. I think it would just depend on how short of cycles you've had and where you would consider, you know, your fertile time with Marquette. It might be a little bit different. Even like syntothermal, you know, you're, you're taking your temperature and you're taking and you're charting your mucus sign. Your mucus sign would alert you to whatever change is happening. So, so even if your cycles are shorter or longer, it, you would, it would alert you to what's happening. 
I think a lot of times this question arises because our grandmothers or even our great grandmothers, a, a method was developed called the calendar method, right? I've never even met in my lifetime anybody who's used the calendar method because it doesn't work <laughs> because of irregularities. And so the calendar method worked sort of mathematically in a sense that you, uh, from the first day of your menstrual period, two weeks later should be when you ovulate. So you count your 14 days. If you're trying, depending on whether you're trying to avoid or achieve a pregnancy, then you know you're ovulating, you know, between these, uh, say, three to seven days. And then you're back to an infertile state until your menstrual period starts again. Of course, that's going, I mean, we all know we're sort of hypersensitive to things around us when it comes to our cycles, you know, an upset in our schedule, illness, all kinds of things can affect our regularity. And some people just never are regular. And I think that, I think we're seeing a really big shift in hormonal health, I guess, amongst young women right now, because it just seems like, I don't know, I think there's just so many hormones in our food and so many hormones in our in our water and all of that, that we're just seeing a shift in, in steady hormones, right? Not that, I mean, steady hormones is almost a, um, an oxymoron, <laughs> because we know that there's anything can shift our hormones, right? I think that that's where the question comes from, probably, is it sort of a fear of, okay, what about irregularity? Uh, how could I possibly know when I'm when I'm um, fertile uh, or when I'm not. But you, if you know the signs of ovulation, then that's, that's what you're working with. And I personally found that, that a bit challenging because I don't produce a lot of cervical mucus. So I found that a bit challenging to sort of recognize when transition was happening. And I had to sort of be more aware of it. And, and fortunately over the years, it ha hasn't been that important to me to, but I, I liked being aware you know, so I think that, you know, depending on the woman and depending on her body and its particular symptoms, you may want to choose your method according to uh, sort of what you're dealing with, right? So like, for example, uh, um, an estrogen check in the morning might be more, uh, that might have been really valuable for me back in the day. Cervical mucus wasn't particularly helpful. Did you find it hard to sort of track ovulation? Was that something that seemed really obvious to you? I never really had to. So. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were we we called it naturally unplanned families NUF. <laughs> so and there was a few of us around here who who practiced that. <laughs> it's funny though. I think NFP does, and maybe you can speak to this too, Gina. NFP does open a door for you that makes fertility so much more real. And your the purpose of sexuality, the twofold purpose, unity, unity and procreation so much more tangible and real that that you start to become more open because I've known people who started off their marriage using NFP and you know wanting to be sort of in control still because they think that they think that birth control because it has control in the title gives you control when in fact the birth control failure is rampant I think that it opens a door and it softens people toward the idea of if their circumstances allow in terms of health and finances and all of that, that they are just become more open to children, right? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too, actually. Yeah, it seems to it seems to make sense. So what if what if somebody is is nervous of pregnancy? So so what do we do? So we have if we're concerned about pregnancy or if we have very serious reasons why we want to avoid a pregnancy, how can we increase when you use the term perfect use, how can we increase the um, effectiveness of natural family planning so that we're more likely to avoid a pregnancy? Say um, trying to get an instructor is, is a definite 
somebody that is okay. you know, teaching you the method and checking in with you and evaluating your charts regularly. Right. And then somebody you can go to later on, you know, even in another time, you know, like two or three years later, who will help you mm -hmm. and assist you. Um, and then, um, you know, right. and then, of course, you know, you doing all the reading and the researching yourself. Also, women say who are in, mm -hmm. say, in situations where they really should not get pregnant, you know, like really serious medical conditions. There's ways that you can add to the effectiveness a little bit, you know, like right. avoiding a lot of the methods will split every split the cycle up into like phase one, phase two, phase three. And phase two would be like the fertile time. And then phase one and phase three are like the infertile times. So some women will then not use phase one right. if maybe to try to increase maybe the effectiveness. I also have heard that what you can do too is you could abstain during phase one and phase two, and then you could actually do a blood draw. And this would be for somebody maybe who has really serious medical issues. And the, the blood draw would tell you, yes, you definitely are past ovulation now. Okay. You know, and then they could add that to their their regular charting, you know, in addition. Right. So in a sense, instead of uh instead of sort of marking your your um period of of fertility, you're you're almost marking your period of infertility, like this is our safe time. You put a bigger fence around around your fertile period. And so you're more thinking of it as, okay, when, when are my windows of opportunity, right? Right, right. And, you know, in the NFP, most NFP methods mm -hmm. are very highly effective. But if this is for just for couples who, like I said, who just feel especially nervous or have right. medical reasons, and they could add this, these other little things just to make them to feel, you know, to feel right. okay. better about it. Okay, gotcha. I, it reminds me of one of the um, uh, one of the advantages, really, in my opinion, of of NFP is that you can really easily change your mind, <laughs> and you know that could be considered a user failure, right? It would sort of increase to the what you might call the failure rate. But if you're in a fertile time, and the, the husband and wife say, well do we really want to not have a baby? You know, like yes. maybe we should, like they're open, like they can reconsider. They can, they can think, well, yeah, maybe God is calling us to have a baby. Maybe it's not as bad mm -hmm. as we thought. Maybe we should go ahead and try for another pregnancy. And, yeah. and you know, if you're using um, an artificial method, you're on the pill or whatever other method, you often don't have that option, right? Mm -hmm. In the moment of changing your mind, because you've made yourself, and fertile, right? Mm -hmm. So, so really, I think that is a, an advantage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. And really kind of capitalizing on the health yeah. of fertility. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, uh, that many people have, have said that sort of through the use of NFP, um, they have kind of noted health problems because of various things going on with their cycles that it's helped them to achieve maximum health because because fertility is such a marker of our health uh, that it's helped them achieve better health because uh, uh, because they're learning about their body. And I think, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing, right? Do you have any other sort of thoughts on, um, let's sort of wrap up going back to the beginning, kind of ecological breastfeeding that you feel should be noted or should be shared? What for you in particular, for you as a mom, how has ecological breastfeeding 
aided your life, improved your life, changed your life? How is it, you know, how, how has that been? I mean, I would say that ecological breastfeeding has helped make me the mother that I am today. It has just helped me grow in this real closeness with my children and just learn to um, just grow with them and, 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 and kind of become a more gentle mother too. I also homeschool and I think that there's this kind of continuum, you know, from breastfeeding then onto the homeschooling and, or there can be, it doesn't, you know, there's, doesn't have to be that way. It's just been really beautiful. And it's just, it's, I really treasured that part of my life. I mean, I'm no longer breastfeeding a baby um, because my youngest is 11, but it really treasured all those years of, I mean, I breastfed for about 15, 16 years. So it was just such Mm -hmm. a beautiful part of my life. Yeah. 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 You wouldn't change it. Right. You wouldn't go back and think, Oh shoot. No. Nurse that baby for the extra year. (laughs) No, definitely not. What about you, Lori? Do you feel like there's um, something, you know, how it helped you grow as a person? Yeah. I think that, that the kind of the key difference for me was that it changed my whole attitude sort of, you know, 180 degrees. So instead of instead of having the goal of making the baby the least amount of trouble to me as possible, you know, like getting the baby to stop nursing and getting the baby to sleep at night and not bother me and, and all that. Instead, I was, my goal was to have the closest relationship that I could have with my baby, just to have my baby as happy and fulfilled as possible. And it just changed my attitude. It, it, it took away my kind of resentment at not being able to do what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, because what I wanted to do was to make that my relationship with my baby, number one, like my very top priority. And it, I mean, all parents are trying for that, you know, but it moved me in that direction. And there's, there's difficulties, you know, like learning how to nurse your baby laying down and at night and, you know, being able to go back to sleep easily or, you know, even, safely nursing your baby while you're laying down sleeping, you know, all kinds of things that are learning how to nurse two babies if you're tandem (laughs) nursing, you know, but they're not, they're difficult, but having, looking after a child is difficult and they're not insurmountable problems. And there's people that can help you. Those things work out and overall the advantages are just so much greater. The benefits are so much greater Mm -hmm. that they far outweigh those comparatively small difficulties Mm -hmm. so yeah 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 it's always going to be hard it's always going to take sacrifice it just does Mm -hmm. you bring a child into the world (laughs) you are signing up for (laughs) (laughs) self-sacrifice uh one of the things i'd really love for you to do uh gina is to just first of all is there any resources that you feel like okay if this is a new world somebody what would be um other than catholic nursing nursing mother's league which we'll get to in a moment but like books uh or resources that you feel like these are things you should have in your hand right off the bat. Um, you mean as in terms of ecological breastfeeding or? An earth, ecological breastfeeding or uh, natural family planning. Sheila's books are really the main books um, that I know of on ecological breastfeeding. So, you know, we mentioned breastfeeding and natural child spacing. She also has another book called um, The Seven Standards of Ecological Breastfeeding, The Frequency Factor. And that one has a lot of the um, more scientific studies, you know, woven into it. Okay. She also has 
breastfeeding and Catholic motherhood. I don't know okay, how much ecological breastfeeding is, is in that, but I'm sure it's touched on at least a little bit. Actually, there's a new book that I found out about. It's called A High Calling. And it was actually written by a woman who I believe mm-hmm. is a Mennonite. But it's really beautiful. And she talks in, she's, it's all about like kind of living the ecological breastfeeding lifestyle. Oh, cool. And so, um, and, and so like all of these books, um, my ministry offers to people for free, you know, so if, oh, wow. if somebody wanted to contact me and wanted one of these books, I could get it for them. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And so can you tell us a little bit about Catholic Nursing Mothers League, how, how it, um, what format it is and, and all of that? You have some beautiful uh, articles on your, it's like a, runs like a blog kind of, right? Your website, is your website called Catholic Nursing Mothers League or is it called something else? So are you talking about the address or the name? The name, where where you post all your beautiful stuff. Yeah, so it's called Catholic Nursing Mothers League. Okay. Um, you know, but the address is catholicbreastfeeding.blogspot.com. Okay, okay. Yeah, really, really nice. And I think, you know, um, I'm assuming it's searchable that you have tags and whatnot because uh, yeah. you want to go back and look at things, but it's, it's really lovely. So, and then, so the Facebook page, how does that work? Like uh, in terms of sort of the community of Catholic Nursing Mothers League? Um, so we have quite a few things. Um, so we have um, our main Facebook group has about uh, 1,300 people in it. And then we have two smaller ones that are pretty small. One is actually just completely the focus is ecological breastfeeding. Okay. And then there's another one that's Catholic motherhood. Okay. And is it is it just called and ecological then, breastfeeding? What's that Facebook? Um, I, it's called CNML Ecological okay. Breastfeeding Group. Okay. I believe. Great. And then um, we also have a monthly um, online meeting okay. that we offer. And we usually have, um, you know, like 10 people uh, on the okay. meeting. And we've become kind of international in a way. Right. So some, so like the last call, we had women from four different countries on mm, the call, on the Zoom call. Yeah. And so, so that's been really exciting. Yeah. And then another thing that, has kind of been our focus from the beginning is we are encouraging women to become mentors to other moms. And so we have people kind of sign up and then I, I mail them some books and these little gift bags they can give to nursing moms. And, and so that's Mm -hmm. kind of been the focus from the beginning. That's awesome. And it seems to me that most of these resources that you're mentioning are available on the Facebook page. Like your, your blog posts um, pop up there and various other resources that are happening the meetings would also be advertised there yeah yeah okay. it's on the web uh, it's on my website like okay. kind of on the um on there's like a little three little lines in the corner you know and it pulls down this whole list and then i usually try to post things in the facebook group also like if there's a new okay. post we have a meeting oh and just we're going to also do something with another ministry we're going to do a a short little retreat for moms who have had miscarriages. Okay. And so I just posted about that. And so we have lots of little things like that going on. And I always try to post in different places. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for that ministry. That's really a wonderful thing. And we need to see more of that, you know, getting public, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
and normalizing it. So, so thank you very much for, and thanks for meeting with us today. This is great. I, I think that it'll answer some questions for sure. And uh, if people have more questions, can I forward them to your group? Oh yeah, sure. Okay. okay I will do that. Well, God bless. Uh, and thank you so much. Thank you.